Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. And we're back. This is Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. And today we're going to do something that we have maybe contemplated doing for a while because it, it was probably close to a year ago when you made the recommendation, Christopher, that I read Al-Ghazali, and in particular, just a short tract. It's an abridgment of his much larger work, which is contained in two volumes, but you know, this was a very accessible, small, almost pamphlet-sized book that I could get through just real quick. It's 100 pages or something like that. And so it was this abridgment of the alchemy of happiness that became my introduction to Al-Ghazali. And since that time, you know, we've, we've used him as kind of a uh, touch point to, in context of different conversations to discuss the spiritual path within the context of Islam and Sufism. And then you've had a couple of opportunities to present, uh, to do some presentations for the groups that we're involved with. And I've attended both of those. And so anyway, we've, we've been batting this around for a while and you just thought it was maybe a good time to do an episode on it. And we may do another one if we get more into it. But, you know, let's let's do this. Let's let's talk a little bit about Al-Ghazali, talk a little bit about alchemy of happiness, and see if we can get our listeners to have that spark of interest that I had and maybe learn a little bit about a, a parallel form of religion within the, the Islamic tradition and, and learn something new, broaden our horizons here. So what do you say? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think the reason it came up for me when you asked me, you know, what, what are we going to record this week? I, ju- I just visited Zaytuna College, and Zaytuna College is the only accredited Muslim institution of higher learning in America. We we're just talking about this pre-show. It's a, it's a great books school. It's, you know, classical education, liberal arts model, classical education, that kind of thing. And I think because I had just gone to visit there over Thanksgiving break, Al-Ghazali just came to my mind again. This is a text that I return to from time to time. I've taught it for a number of years using this abridgment that you're talking about. Over the summer, I translated a, a text by, by the, a similar title, and maybe we need to disambiguate a little bit. I can talk about who Al-Ghazali is and, and uh, his works. But, but first, who is Al-Ghazali? You know, so Al-Ghazali is this really interesting figure because there's no one like him in the Western tradition. So you have uh, the founder of Zaytuna College, and this is how I first found out about Al-Ghazali. I was watching a docudrama based on his, I guess it's not really how I first found out about him. It's first, I first, yeah, it is. It's how I first found out about him. I had read his book, The Deliverance from Error, and it is autobiographical. So I had some sense of him, but I watched this docudrama that was based on that work, but it had all all these interviews. And so Sheikh Hamza, one of the founders of Zaytuna College, was on there talking about him. And he has this great talk on YouTube, the critical importance of Al-Ghazali in our time. And so I got a better sense of who Al-Ghazali was and have since learned more. And Sheikh Hamza's dad worked with Mortimer Adler at the, in the Great Books program at Chicago 
Mortimer Adler's the guy that made the set, right? The Great Books of the Western World and Britannica published that. And my father-in-law used to sell them door to door. He just told me when he was selling those door to door, he ran into um, George Walker Bush. He actually pitched the great books to George Walker Bush and he didn't buy him by the way. (laughs) But yeah, maybe you should have, you know, future presidents read the great books, right? So, you know, he's, he's this figure that because Sheikh Hamza's dad worked in that program, he read all of the Western tradition, right? From all the way back to Homer. And of course, including the Bible all the way up to Freud. And when he heard his son interviewed on this docudrama I mentioned, he asked his son, is, is there, you know, anybody, is there, not anybody, is there anything in, in English I can read from Al-Ghazali? He said, sure, dad. And he told him what to read and he read it. And he said, son, two things. Number one, the, the West has never produced an Al-Ghazali. Um, number two, if you spent the rest of your life reading nothing but Al-Ghazali, it would not be a wasted life, which is a really nice thing to say to Sheikh Hamza, his son, because he reads a lot of Al-Ghazali. And you know what? So do I. I read and reread Al-Ghazali a lot. He has a lot to offer. You watched this docudrama, didn't you? I did watch that. Yeah. It might just be interesting to clarify that Sheikh Hamza is, he's a, he's a convert to Islam, right? So his father is. is not Islamic. He's not a Muslim. Oh, yes, right. Exactly. And, and so for him to make that kind of a compliment um, to Sheikh Having Hamza, studied the Western canon. Right. Yeah. Is big. I mean, the only other person you might think of that could even somewhat approach in importance the level of Al-Ghazali for the Muslim world would be like Thomas Aquinas or something, right? I mean... I love that you brought up Thomas Aquinas because that is true. And to drive the point home, St. Thomas Aquinas acknowledged Al-Ghazali as one of his intellectual influences. So that's the kind of figure we're talking about. He's a theologian. He's, um, he's a jurist. He's a philosopher. And he's a Sufi. And we're here really to talk about his Sufism, right? His, the contemplative side of Al-Ghazali. Well, and by the way, I mean, Al-Ghazali was well known in Europe. E- even during his life, he had a reputation in Europe as a, an extreme intellectual someone who not only studied, you know, his own faith tradition, but really contended well with the, the philosophical traditions of the, of the Western world and spent a lot of time studying those and, um, and refining those. So very well known. I think his, he was known as uh, Al-Gazelle in Europe or something like that. It's some, some transliteration of his name, but nevertheless, they knew about him. Yeah, I didn't know that he was known in his lifetime in the West. Of course, after he dies and, you know, because the Muslims, they, they translated Greek philosophy in the 800s into English, sorry, into Arabic. And then that comes into the Latin tradition in the 1200s, so several hundred years later. And so then all of these Muslim philosophers have these Latinized names. So Al-Ghazali becomes Al-Ghazel. So he's well known at that point. And, uh, and again one of the acknowledged intellectual influences of, of one of the towering figures in Western thought being St. Thomas Aquinas. And actually, you know, Riley, I think it's actually a, a false dichotomy to divide the world between Islamic and Western because, again, first of all, Islamic is Western. Islam is Western. It actually comes out of the West. We think of it as the East, but it's not actually the East. And it's very much the case also that our own philosophical tradition, which originally comes from Greece, is brought to us via the Muslims because after it was lost to us in the Middle Ages, the Muslims brought it back to us because they engaged with that tradition at the height of their civilization between, you know, around the 800s. And some of the towering figures of Islamic thought really even came out of Spain, 
what what is today Spain, you know, and and you look at Al Aribi, uh, or sorry, Ibn Aribi. Uh, he he was actually born in in Spain and spent most of his life in Europe. Uh, you know, going across to Tunisia or whatever, or or Morocco from time to time, but most of his life was spent right there in Spain. Yeah, we have to remember that the the, the Muslim world stretched from well, Al Ghazali's Persian. You know, so it stretched from Persia all the way over to Spain. So it's vast. And yeah, a lot of, it's interesting how many thinkers have come out of Spain. You know, some of the Stoics like Marcus Aurelius, uh, Seneca. Let's see, Marcus Aurelius, is he from Spain? Seneca is from Spain. Uh, Al-Ghazali is from Persia. Ibn Arabi, as you mentioned, is from Murcia, Spain. You have Al-Ghazali's contender in the philosophical tradition is also from Spain. His name is Averroes in the Latin tradition, Ibn Rushd in Arabic. And so that brings us to one of the most important books that Al-Ghazali wrote, just to quickly go through his works. He actually writes a book uh, against philosophy. Well, okay, not against philosophy. That's how it's usually understood. I shouldn't have said that. It's against particular strains of philosophy, the, the Neoplatonism of Ibn Sina, known in the West as Avicenna. And so it's called, it's a great title, I love this title, The Incoherence of the Philosophers. Uh, or the destruction of the philosophers, as the Latin title Destructio Philosophorum had it. And then so later on, in the 1200s, Al-Ghazali died in 1111, Ibn Rushd, or Averroes, writes The Incoherence of the Incoherence, which now is just the coolest title ever, right? The Destruction of the Destruction. So he does that. Yeah, he writes on the intentions of the philosophers, and he writes this magnum opus that's called The Revival of the Religious Sciences, and this book that we're talking about, the, the Alchemy of Happiness, is, is the Persian version of that same work that he wrote in Arabic. And, and this, of course, we're talking about an abridgment because, again, this is a text where if you just look on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy books, you can find the Alchemy of Happiness in the Claude Field abridgment uh, and translation, which, by the way, is actually from, from Hindu, from Persian. So how does this book come down to us? What is it that makes it so interesting that it's translated from Persian to Hindu to, you know, to English and abridged and, you know, people are reading it on vacation in Mexico and that, well, that's you, rather. You should tell your story. <laughs> well, I think the, the ideas that he puts forth have, have wide engagement and interest. Um, they, they dovetail or overlap with religious traditions or spiritual traditions in many uh, from many countries or areas, and so I think that there's there's broad appeal there. And again, you you had recommended this to me, and I, I happened to be in Mexico in what was it? It was in May of this of this year. Was it this year or last year? Geez, now I forget. Anyway, I was in Mexico, and I'm you know by the pool, sitting in a pool chair, and I'm reading Al Ghazali in the sun. Beautiful day, and out in the pool in front of me. Uh, this man kind of yells at me. He's like, hey, hey, you reading Al-Ghazali? <laughs> and I said, well, I, yeah, I am. And he's like, we need to talk, brother. And so we spent hours. I, this guy I'd never seen in my life. We get into the shallow end of the pool, and we're just laying down in the kiddie pool area and just talking Al-Ghazali and Islam and my own you know, faith background. And it, he introduced me to his family and his wife from Canada and his mother-in-law and all the people that were with him on vacation. I introduced him to my whole family and my parents who were with me. And it was a great 
uh, it was a great experience, and I've I've kept in touch with him. In fact, I spoke with him for about a half an hour yesterday about Sufism. Um, good guy, F- fun, fun, engaging conversation. You know, Riley, this reminds me. There was a recent conference on Islam at BYU, and elders Bednar and Gong came out in that conference. Uh, they spoke saying that uh, that the church is going to produce a pamphlet. It's coming out with a pamphlet on Islam, and that the members of the church should get to know Islam better. That's right. And so you're you're a great example of of how you do that, right? Just read some Al Ghazali by the pool and strike up a conversation with Muslims and become friends, right? Yeah, it's really no different than the old adage that, you know, you ought to pull out your Book of Mormon on a plane and someone will strike up a conversation with you. It's the same thing. That's right. People are drawn to ideas and to good conversations. I am. And so I, I think that just happens organically if you just engage in that process. So, Christopher, we've done a little bit of introduction about Al-Ghazali as a person, um, but maybe not a whole lot about his history, where he comes from in terms of his upbringing, and then what led to his great, you could call it, his his ecstatic revelation. Yeah, you know, I was hoping we could go into that a little bit before we go into the book, because to understand where Al-Ghazali is coming from, I think it's important that we know that this is a guy who not only after, you know, he dies and he's known in the West and helps us to, you know, get back our our own tradition in some sense. In his own time, he became the you could think of him as the dean of Harvard, right? He's at the he's at the Nizamiya in Baghdad. And this is the most prestigious institution of higher learning in the Islamic world at the time. And he's the teacher and he's the teacher who who's you can't even students can't even go to his lectures because they're full of other teachers that want to hear him teach. And so he's mastered his own tradition, again, as a jurist, as, um, as, a, as a theologian. And so he's just at the top of the world in that sense. And he knows his tradition in and out. And he can argue with the best of them. He couldn't lose an argument. They say he just could not lose an argument. He won all the arguments. And then something happens to him. He actually can't talk. He actually loses the ability to speak. He comes to this personal crisis. A crisis of faith, you could say, maybe. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know how, you, how comfortable he'd be with that. He writes something that later on Descartes does a similar thing, where he expresses, he goes through this what we could call methodological doubt, and he goes through all of the ways that you can know things to find out what how you can have sure knowledge. And he actually ends up with the Sufis. He looks at the Kalamists, uh, that are the theologians. He looks at the Gnostics. Uh, who claim that they have, you know, special uh, esoteric knowledge. He looks at the philosophers who have apodeictic proofs of things. And then he looks at the Sufis and he says, the only way to have sure knowledge is to get it straight from God, straight from the source. And this is what the Sufis are doing. These are the contemplatives in Islam, the mystics. These are the ones who are, tur- are turning to God to look for knowledge. But he has to go through this, you know, losing this position or actually giving it up because it's not like he... It's taken away from him. He take, gives up this position, leaves some money to take care of his wife and kids with his uh, other family, you know, with male family members, and he leaves and he goes off, and he doesn't tell anybody where he's going. And he travels and he goes from the dean of Harvard, so to speak, to the janitor. Now he's in Damascus and he's sweeping the mosque, and people are discussing his books and arguing about them, and he's listening and not saying anything. I want to come back to something you talked about there because it's something that I think speaks to our day today. And in fact, I just tuned in last week and I shared this podcast with you too uh, as well, the, the Jordan Peterson podcast, and he had on as guests 
uh, two from a religious tradition and, and another gentleman, John Verveek, who's who's more from the uh, the cognitive, theoretical, scholarly tradition. And they just had the most wonderful conversation. And, and really the key to what they were talking about or the topic they were discussing was knowledge and, and the knowledge gap or the, the crisis of knowledge and the, the crisis of meaning that comes from not having a sure footing for obtaining knowledge. And one of the things that you just mentioned about um, Al-Ghazali was that he was he was really struggling with how to know, not what to know, not the facts, not the what John Vervaet calls the propositional knowing of whether something is true or false or black or white or positive or negative. That's propositional knowing. Al-Ghazali thought, and, and he eventually settled on the Sufism the, the Sufi way of knowing, which was more participatory, experiential, perspectival, and even procedural to to some extent, because the, the best knowledge comes directly from access to God. It's that procedure of accessing God and then receiving knowledge from God. And and so he was really arguing for a different way of knowing. A thousand years before this, these four heavyweights of the intellectual dark web were having the same conversation on the, this podcast. Yeah, that's right. And so he has this crisis of knowledge. He goes off, he leaves his position, and he becomes a mystic. You know, he realizes that, I think we can make a comparison rather in our tradition with the idea of being a Pharisee. He really knew, because the Pharisees were also jurists, right? These are legal scholars. These are scholars of religion. They know all this stuff, and maybe they're they're doing the things by the book. But what Al-Ghazali wanted to do, he saw that people blindly followed tradition and he thought you should follow tradition, but not blindly. He wanted to, he, he thought that intention mattered because it's the intention of the heart that actually draws you closer to God in performing the religious duties. The religious duties themselves, what we call the checklist gospel in our conversations, are not enough to get you there. But of course, you know, if you're doing the if you're going through the checklist with the with the proper intention, and even if you're you know, I would say even if you don't have the intention, if you're not aware of that. Uh, you're still keeping your nose clean, so to speak. I think that's a beginning. It's just not going to get you all the way there. In fact, we have a great quote, don't we, from from Al-Ghazali on this. Yeah, why don't you read that one? I love that. Yeah, so somewhere in in this Arabic, in the Arabic recension of what's, it's, it's another work by the same title, The Alchemy of Happiness. We'll have to maybe disambiguate those in another episode. He says, knowledge of the spirit is very difficult to acquire because the path to knowledge of it is not mentioned in religion, as there is no need in religion to know it, since religion is striving, and knowledge of the Spirit is a sign of guidance. Man, what that points to for me is it it draws a a distinction between almost kind of like the masculine and the feminine mode of, of obtaining knowledge. The masculine way might be to pursue it, almost like in a hunt, as a hunter would pursue its prey. And, and you do that by tackling books and, and attending lectures and just putting yourself in all of those positions um, and, and then really attacking it, the knowledge. And then there's the second way, which is, is sort of receptive and, and humble. It's putting yourself in a position of meekness and humility to be able to receive knowledge by almost being empty of your own agendas and biases and maybe even your prior knowledge that you've obtained. It's, it's like wiping the slate clean so that you can receive 
pure knowledge or revelation from a higher source. That reminds me of a quote from Al-Ghazali where he says in another work, and a lot of his works actually tend to be epitomes of other works. So the revival of the religious sciences is his magnum opus. The alchemy of happiness is a summary of that in Persian, the revivals in Arabic. And then this particular work that this quote comes from is called Beloved Disciple, and it's the shortest possible uh, version of you know Al-Ghazali's ideas. And he says, knowledge without work or action, knowledge without action is insanity, and action without knowledge is vanity. So he, he was really big on this question of what do you do with this knowledge, right? You actually, if you don't actually put it into practice, then it doesn't do you any good. So he thought, you know, just to know things and to know the law, but not to actually perform the religious rituals and actually get close to God, which is the whole purpose of them, was just insane. There's just, it's just vanity and it's just insanity not to actually carry, you know, go on and not to actually do these things for the sake of God. Not for the sake of the checklist, but for the sake of God. Yeah, something we kind of discussed a little bit pre-show is what is it that the works do for you? And we've had this discussion many times. This is like, this is one of the repetitive conversations we have throughout the episodes in our podcast. And it was really the subject of on exotericism and esotericism. I don't remember what episode number that was, but they can look back in the list. And that is that you need both. That you know, one doesn't save. You can't work your way into a sure knowledge or communion with God. But without doing it, you're not going to arrive there either. You need both. So it's, it, you know, we tend to put the moniker of worthiness on this process. And we say, okay, you've got you've to do all the things. You've got to, what we call the checklist gospel. You've got to do those things. And then that makes you worthy, quote unquote, of going to that next level or having the knowledge of God then revealed to you. Worthiness in that respect, it takes on just kind of a strange, like there's a lot of baggage that comes along with it. It becomes a moral judgment of one's character when in reality what it is, it's a sign of personal preparedness. Like if I'm willing to enter into this this habit or this uh, procedure for becoming prepared for the knowledge, then there's a higher chance of receiving the knowledge. It's like anything in life. And this this is, should be very relatable for anyone. You go to school and you go to school so that you can learn. And then once you've learned, you're better prepared for your vocation. And I'm not saying the only point of going to school is your vocation, but it's a side, it's a side benefit. It's a byproduct of acquiring knowledge. And once you've acquired knowledge, you're better prepared to then receive that knowledge that comes from a vocation. And it's sort of the same thing. Um, the worthiness, again, there's some baggage that comes with that, but if you kind of replace the implied meanings of worthiness with preparedness, then perhaps you start to come closer to what the meaning of that is and, and how best to approach the esoteric knowledge that comes after you've acquired the knowledge. Yeah, you know, so that brings me back to the quote that you asked me to read. I, I want to go through that again, and let's make sure that that we can explain it in our own words here, right? Knowledge of the spirit is very difficult to acquire because the path to knowledge of it is not mentioned in religion. By the way, this is my translation from the Arabic recension. The The point so far is religion doesn't actually give you knowledge from God because knowledge from God comes from God, not from religion. So we've talked about 
you know, revelation is a direct experience. Scriptures are tellings of direct experience and therefore at least one step removed from the actual experience. I think putting them into language implies much more than just one step of removal, but, you know, we could say they're at least one step removed from the experience. And so religion doesn't actually give you that knowledge. So knowledge of the Spirit is very difficult to acquire because the path to knowledge of it is not mentioned in religion, as there's no need in religion to know it since religion is striving. And knowledge, or I could say whereas knowledge of the Spirit, is a sign of guidance. So if I have knowledge of the Spirit, that's because I've received it directly from the divine presence. I've received it directly from God. If I have, um, if I'm in religion, that means I'm in going through these practices that are meant to purify my heart, that are going to make it open to then receiving that divine guidance. So one thing is religion that prepares me for the revelatory experience of the divine presence, and another thing is the actual experience of divine presence and of revelation from God. Yeah, and the two words that stuck out to me there were striving, meaning that's what religion is. It's the striving. And then knowledge of the Spirit is guidance. Notice the difference between striving and guidance? Yeah, one is, again, as you said, archetypally speaking, masculine, and it's in, in one's pursuit of it. And by the way, Al-Ghazali has an image. I, I just remembered that you said something about hunting it. Al-Ghazali actually has an image in the Arabic recension of the alchemy of happiness of actually taking the faculties that you have that aren't the faculties that have direct access to God and to use them as tools to hunt that actual experience. So you need both, right? You have to actually actively hunt the knowledge. And then at the same time, that really is just to prepare you to then actually passively receive it in the archetypally feminine, receptive way. And so you really need both. And so this is very much like Al-Ghazali, the idea that you need both and, the esoteric and the exoteric, that one without the other is not enough. And the idea that you need knowledge and action, contemplation and action, right? You need both. So let's jump into some more of, you know, the distinctively Al-Ghazali ideas that, and, and the ways or the model for approaching kind of the, the human soul. Like what, what is it composed of? What does it move you to do? Let's go into some of those aspects. Yeah, you know, having in mind the, all the while, I think, the, the idea that this is alchemy, Right, that we're actually talking about alchemy, so we're talking about purification, and what's being purified here is not base metals into gold, but our own souls. Uh, the image that Al-Ghazali uses in the abridgment that we discussed is this idea of the, the soul being a mirror that has to be polished so that it can correctly reflect the divine essence that is in our own souls, so it can reflect God. Al-Ghazali starts off by telling us that we the only way that we can get to know God is to know our own souls because our souls are the part of us that is divine. And so sense data isn't going to get us access to God. The only way to get access to God is directly through by the soul, which actually has contact with the unseen world, as he calls it. And there are, there are actually Quranic terms that he uses that are, that are interesting because the Quran actually divides up the universe, let's say, the cosmos, all that exists, right, into different realms or dominions. And you'd have the seen world and the unseen world and the world of command. And so he's working within that framework and within that cosmological framework. And he's saying, he points out that when you're asleep, you actually have this direct act, the soul, in the Muslim tradition, the soul goes back to 
God when you sleep. We don't have any idea what happens while we sleep, really. That's something as human beings we're still trying to figure out. So that's as good as answer as any. Um, they say that the the soul becomes tired of the world and has to go back to God where it comes from. But the important point here in what Al-Ghazali is saying is that the soul comes from God. And so the soul has access to this world that the senses don't have access to. And what is this conception of the soul in his tradition? I mean, we know what it is in the, in the Latter-day Saint theology. The soul is the spirit and body. But the soul kind of means something else, doesn't it, in his tradition? Right, as in, as in most other Christian traditions, right? The soul is probably equivalent to our spirit in our tradition. That's a really good point to bring that up, considering that we, we think about it differently. But even for him, the spirit or the soul goes beyond just just the spirit it, it doesn't it connect somewhat to the intellect like the thing that makes us distinctively human versus animal is is that cognition that awareness right yeah and al-ghazali it's not always 100 percent clear that there's a distinction between the heart and i'm not talking about he does make it clear when he talks about the heart that he's not talking about the the pound of flesh on the left hand side of the body right that's a vehicle for the the actual heart that he's talking about so it's more like the intellect, uh, the mind. You know, we can say that the heart or the mind and kind of have mean the same thing. And yet, so he, he sometimes talks about the soul and the heart as separate and distinct, and sometimes they seem to blend together. But yeah, there's, there's some psychology to this, meaning an understanding of the soul. So there's, there's Sufi psychology is what we're talking about here. And I think it can be helpful because no matter whether your heart and your soul are separate or your mind and your heart are separate and distinct or not, and that's something that we can't really see, hear, smell, taste, or touch. This is a, a let's say, let's call it an intellectual exercise, an imaginal exercise. And if we can think about this imaginally, then we can see a usefulness in it. Just like Freud's psychological language gave us a way to talk about ourselves, right? And when I say ourselves, there's an example, right? Al-Ghazali says, to know God, you have to know yourself. But that's just one translation of what he's saying. He's really saying that you have to know your nafs, which is equivalent, that's the Arabic equivalent to the Hebrew nefesh, which is translated soul. So it could be considered the ego self too. The ego self, the soul, this is not the highest. There's a, a separate word for spirit that is a cognate to the Hebrew word for spirit. And, and so to say that the soul and the spirit are the same is is not exactly accurate either, right? Because if you got the nafs and then you have the ruach, these are slightly different ideas, right? Yeah, again, it's not really clear if, you know, it's not always clear whether Al-Ghazali distinguishes between nafs and ruh, you know, but they're both there in Al-Ghazali too. Yeah. I actually, when we were trying to remember where we brought up some of these ideas before, it's coming back to me. I think it was the episode we had Travis Patton on and we talked about classical uh, contemplation. And he was bringing up the way that the class, the, the classical world, the Greeks, organized the soul, or organized this this you know combination of body and spirit that composed the human. It was to you know you had the world soul and and so on down the line. But Al Ghazali he organized it a different way to help us understand. And it doesn't mean that either one is better or wrong or right. But this is just the way that he organized it was with the dog soul, the pig soul, and then he has like the rational or sage soul. And each one of them has a role, right? Yeah, so this is very much in the, the Platonic tradition that I was uh, going to mention. Is It's this idea that that the soul has parts. And, and again, he doesn't, 
Al-Ghazali knows, he mentions specifically of the heart, what he's calling the heart, al-qalb, al-qalb, you know, the, the, the heart. The, 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 the qalb cannot be divided. It's because it's not from this world. Things in this world can be divided. That idea goes all the way back to Plato. It's, it's expressed in almost identical terms with Al-Ghazali and St. Augustine. And so it's this idea then, this Platonic idea that, that there, there are powers of the soul. So they're not different souls, even though he says the animal soul, the pig soul, the dog soul, sorry, the pig soul, the dog soul, and the angel soul, or the angelic soul, which is the rational soul. They're just, they're powers of the soul. And so this actually goes into a little bit of what Al-Ghazali is up to and how we actually purify our souls, right? Which is this idea that he has in mind the great chain of being. The great chain of being that goes, again, back to Plato, at least, it's this idea that, and you mentioned Neoplatonism, in, in this becomes important, this chain of being becomes important in any mystical tradition, including in Neoplatonism, because we can ascend it. So Al-Ghazali is the one who introduces the idea that Pico de la Mirandola is most famous for having introduced in the West. But Pico got it likely from his, there's, there seems to be evidence that he got it from his Hebrew teacher who read, who read Al-Ghazali. So Pico didn't read Al-Ghazali, but Pico's Hebrew teacher read Al-Ghazali. And so this is a famous, you know, 15th century Florentine, uh, Italian Renaissance. But this idea comes from Al-Ghazali that we can either descend to the level of beasts or we can ascend to the level of angels. And what he wants to do with the alchemy is to take us from the level of beasts up to the level of angels. So he points out that we have in common certain things with beasts, with beasts of burden, with beasts of prey, even with demons. All of those are part of our potential, right? And so then, but we also have this angelic potential, and how do we realize that? Yeah, and I, I actually see quite a bit of overlap if you go to the other side of the world, into the, into the Far East, or into the, the Hindu tradition with the chakras. I mean, that's basically the same idea. You're taking these metaphorical ideas, and, and you're, you're assigning them to different levels within the human form or frame. So the chakras, the idea is to ascend through the spine, and each one of those spinal segments represents a different uh, aspect of soul ascension. And, and so this is just another way to express the same idea of, of ascension. Yeah, there don't have to be, metaphysically speaking, these chakras or these parts of the soul or powers of the soul. They're an epistemological reality that helps us to think about and then focus our intention in this idea of alchemy, of purifying our hearts, right? And that's, by the way, very much in line with Al-Ghazali, what you mentioned, because he does mention that the, that the human being is a microcosm. So as the cosmos is, so is found within the human being, which we also see in, uh, in Hermeticism and in Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, yeah. Yeah, as above, so below. That's, that's the clarion call of the Hermeticist, right? Indeed. So these powers that we have in common are these attributes that we have in common with beasts, Al-Ghazali really goes into, and, and in, the, in the Alchemy of Happiness in the full work, there's a whole chapter or book, as it's called in those days. Nowadays, we'd call it a chapter on breaking the two desires. And the two desires are the desires of the stomach and the desires of the genitals. And so he deals with those here in this book, in the Alchemy of Happiness. He deals with what we call concupiscence in English and irascibility. And yet, I say English, but these terms are not that familiar, right? Concupiscence and irascibility. 
So, so I'll define them a little bit. Concupiscence really means the, I like to use the word concupiscence because it's not actually lust that we're talking about, but lust comes from concupiscence. Concupiscence also gives you, it's what has you be attracted to your wife, Riley, and to, to want to marry her. And so it has its place because the procreation of, of the species depends on it. But it also can produce adultery if you don't moderate your desires. Right, so he's talking about desires, the desires of the flesh, the appetites of the flesh, those of the stomach, those of the genitals. And so when it comes to irascibility, this is now the, not anger necessarily, but the ability to become angry, which also has its place. Well, and I think it's important too to, to highlight that the ascension from the physical representation of each of these motivations, which is, again, you mentioned the genitalia, right? So that, that's the base appetite of of procreation that we have in common with all the animal kingdom. We're not set apart from the animals at all. All animals have this exact same appetite for um, you know sensual indulgence. And that comes at the base of the spine again, that it's the lowest energy and it's the lowest energy in this in this mock-up too uh, of Al Ghazali. And so as you ascend, you go from that concupiscence up to irascibility. And irascibility, you might say, is somewhat higher order than just the base instincts because it actually requires differentiating and cognition and, and thinking about something and not purely reacting, but but really putting some thought into something, right? Like, if, like you use the example of a, a woman getting mugged as how our irascibility might be manifested. In pre-show discussion, yeah. So I would say for Al-Ghazali, yeah, it's the idea that, that there's irascibility, that's this capacity to become angry. It's not really anger. So that's why I keep using the term irascibility, but it's where anger comes from. And so that's also something that we share with animals. And it's not quite the rational faculty. It's the rational faculty becomes involved, Riley. Here's where Al-Ghazali's going with it, where you went with it. That's exactly where he wants to go with it is that for us to actually be able to put these powers of our soul underneath the, the rule of the rational power. Because the anger itself is just something that wells up inside us. It's something that is natural and that even animals have. And this is what you see beasts of prey, you know, tearing into flesh, and that's their pleasure, right? That's the pleasure. And ruminants, they like to, you know, the pig lies around in its muck, and that's its nature. And by the way, Al-Ghazali doesn't think that the pig or the or any beast, or any creature of God is reprehensible in its form. It's only, he's talking about attributes. God created those beasts to be that way, and we have those same powers or or attributes in our own souls. But what he wants us to do in a very Aristotelian way is to bring, and and actually, again, in the tripartite soul model of Plato, it's this idea of bringing these other the, the concupiscence and the irascibility under the dominion of the rational soul, what he calls the angel soul. So you get the pig and the dog, the pig being the concupiscent, the dog being the irascible, and put them under the power of the angel soul, such that you're checking these things, you're moderating yourself. And again, you know, we talk about, well, if you don't do it, you know, if you're in these, if you succumb to the desires of the flesh, then you're not worthy to get close to God. Well, I'm not sure that that's exactly the right way to think about it, Riley. As you said earlier, what's, what's going on here is you just actually can't. You can't actually get access to God. It, he's always there. 
You know, all you have to do is knock, but the knocking includes moderating those desires. The religion, as we as it was distinguished by the Ghazali between religion and guidance, religion is you moderating your desires so that you can then receive guidance, which comes from God when you're open to receiving it. So you can say, I'm open to receive it in your mind, but if you're not actually in this place of you're really seeking and you're doing the work, you're hunting this, you're hunting this knowledge and you're, you're doing your part, then you're not really going to be able to receive it. And so that's where this alchemy comes in. Right, because at that point, it seems that your spirit and your body are acting in a discordant manner, right? Because the, body, the body's doing its thing and just responding to stimuli as any animal would, and it's not brought under any sort of control by the higher power. And so there's a discordance. You can't be acting one way and yet receive knowledge about a different way at the same time. They have to be aligned. Yeah, and you know, going back to your example that you mentioned that I was talking about pre-show of seeing an old lady having her purse stolen by uh, a young man, let's say, there's a there's a place for anger. So Al-Ghazali is not saying you should get rid of your sexual appetite. You need that to procreate. He's not saying you should get rid of your ability to become angry or indignant because there's a place for that too. When you see a young man take an old lady's purse, there's something that wells up inside you and that's normal. And, and it's maybe something that, that it's okay to act on, right? It's, you can, I'm not saying that you should act violently, but you can do something to step in to restore justice, right? That's the idea. Well, that's awesome, Chris. Thanks for giving us that explanation. So just to kind of summarize these, these grand ideas of what Al-Ghazali is presenting to us are essentially that God's guidance is available to us, and it does come from within. It is accessed within, but only after a spiritual discipline. And that spiritual discipline is an, a, basically an understanding of what our soul is composed of and how to react so that we can be open for God's guidance to come into our lives. And so it really begins, again, with that that base, the the motivations and the appetites that we have that are really no different from the animals, like the dogs and the pigs. It's the concupiscence and the anger and the irascibility, the indulgence, all those appetites, bringing those under the dominion of the, the intellect, which is the angel soul. And that's what sets us apart from the animals, right? We didn't say that. That's, that's the thing that we have that the animals don't have is that intellect. And so in order to discipline ourselves, we're given, and, and every culture is given these, they're, giving, they're, they're given a path of a disciple, which is the root of discipline, right? It's, it's the way to achieve that, that oneness or unity or that guidance that we can receive from God is through a spiritual discipline. And that discipline involves taking the physical appetites and subjecting them to the higher order soul, that, that angel soul, the best of us, that all of us possess. And so, you know, whether you grow up as a Muslim or a Hindu or a Latter-day Saint, we have these disciplines and it does behoove us to try to practice them so that we build the foundation of a moral, ethical life and are ready, prepared, or in the common parlance, worthy to then receive the guidance from Heavenly Father. And to have in mind that that's what, what we're doing and why we're doing it, right? To have that intention, I'm, I'm, I'm not just checking stuff off a list. 
I'm actually preparing myself to receive that guidance. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. And it's something that's actually discussed in the Book of Mormon as well. And um, I'm probably going to screw this up, but I, I, I remember a part where, uh, and I think it was Nephi, but he says essentially that we, we have this law. We have this law of Moses. And even though we know that Jesus is coming, that there will be a Savior, that there is a Messiah coming, nevertheless, we keep the law. And so for him, he sees the law in its proper context. It's like, okay, this is my discipline. I know that it may not be perfect. In fact, we're, we're actually condemned by the law, as Paul says. But it's not this law that I'm focusing in on. That's the condemnatory part. If you focus on just the law itself and think that that's salvation. No, this is a vehicle. The discipline, the spiritual practice is a vehicle to then arrive at a place where we are in a space and can receive the guidance from God. And so like any discipline, they all serve that purpose, but we have to keep that purpose in mind. Well, that's a great uh, summary, Riley. And that tells us really how to do this. Again, this is about, we wouldn't be doing Al-Ghazali justice if we didn't encourage you to actually do this, right? It's knowledge without action is vanity and action without knowledge is insanity. Or is it the other way around? I think, you know, either way you take that quote, it's meaningful. That's, that's why I have a, such a hard time with it. I've got to memorize the Arabic so I can then produce a translation myself. But, you know, we've got to be able to, to put our intention into actually being close to God and include that in with our religious practice. You know, I, I recently was talking with Phil McLemore, who we've had on the show about meditation, and I learned meditation from somebody else. And I was just going through, you know, what could I learn from Phil in a conversation with him? And there's a really important part that my teacher left out. And that's probably because my teacher is doing this. And I'm not saying anything about the morality of her life, um, but she's, she's just using meditation. I don't know whether she has the, the moral aspect that Phil himself pointed out on, on, on the show we did with him that you have to have that, just like Al-Ghazali saying, and then the spiritual practice comes on top of that, and they don't work, you know, they only work together in conjunction. But she wasn't, she wasn't talking about God at all in her conversation. Neither, neither the monotheist God nor the the God of the gods or the, the God of the gods of the Hindus, which ultimately the gods of the Hindus really do seem to reduce to one God. And so the thing that Phil added to my meditation practice is that when I go to do it, my intention is to get close to God. We have to remember that part. Yeah, super important. In fact, I was just listening to a, a, a seminar that, that Sheikh Hamza put on, and this was from 2014, and he was lecturing a group in Indonesia. And he said, really, the crisis of knowledge stems from the fact that there is no objective value or, or objective reality to God in the mind of academia and really culturally all of our society. And if you don't have that, that end in sight, the end and the beginning in sight, the alpha and the omega, which is God, that motivating first active force and the culmination of all creation, if you don't have that end and beginning in sight, then you're stroking your own ego. That's essentially what the practice will give you, is to say, I'm better than someone else. It just becomes a, a competitive race of who can, who can look best. But if you pair the practice, the spiritual practice, with the, 
with the motivating force of creation, the beginning and the end, God, then you then all of the practice has purpose. Well, hopefully that's been uh, a lucid enough explanation of Al-Ghazali, who he is and, and his ideas as expressed in the alchemy of happiness, whether whether it's the abridgment or the uh, of the the Persian work that again has been translated by Claude Field and abridged by Claude Field that you can easily get online uh, even without paying for it you can download it and hopefully and, and let us know if you're if you're interested in learning more about Al Ghazali and there's more to Al Ghazali there's much more to Al Ghazali and there are other Sufi uh, mystics you mentioned Ibn Arabi Ibn Arabi has a work called The Alchemy of Happiness too and it's not the same work. So, so let us know if you're interested in learning more about Al-Ghazali or other Sufi mystics uh, or mystics in other traditions. We'll be bringing those to you one way or the other, but let us know your interest and, and if you have any questions, if you have any comments. Uh, what are some ways that, that listeners can reach out to us, Riley? Well, certainly they can comment on Apple Podcasts. That, that's probably the most effective. It has the biggest audience, and that helps to give us a feel for what you want to hear. And it also lets people who might be interested in looking into our podcast know what your thoughts are about it. We highly encourage you, the whole like, comment, share thing. It's super important for us to get these messages out. We're, we're doing this not only to document our own journey through contemplation, but also to hopefully build a grassroots movement towards a more contemplative faith amongst all of our peers. So we, in, we, you know, we recruit you and, and hope that you'll help us in this work. And so certainly... Like, comment, share, help us to get the word out, and we welcome all of your comments. So thanks for listening. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone.